All right. Well, I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Adam Erickson, who's the Education Director of the Raven Foundation, a scholar of theology and violence, and a speaker and writer whose work has been featured in Time Magazine and at churches and conferences across the country. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Micah, thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor to be here with you at the Christian Transhumanist Association podcast. And I am just excited to be here to talk with you about Rene Girard and the future of the world. Yeah. (laughs) And where we have been in the past and where we are going. And uh, this is stuff that really gets me excited because um, what you are doing matters Mm. a great deal. I think it's the most important thing um, that we can be talking about. And it's... It, there is no place that I'd rather be than uh, talking with you right now. Wow. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that um, is is really relevant to this conversation is that um, Rene Girard has has just uh, in the last few days has just died, um, and like uh, I think you and I both. Um, have a an appreciation for for uh, his life and his work um, in a really profound way. Like we, um, I think you and I both both kind of share that perspective that you know this is someone who has contributed uh, a profoundly important perspective on the world and history and um, scriptures and religion and so forth. Um, can you? Maybe can you just, you know, in the, um, I don't know, this the simplest way possible, for someone who hasn't ever heard of Girard or um, hasn't encountered any of his ideas, what would you, what would be the, the just kind of quick soundbite explanation of, of who he is and what he's done? Oh, that's a great question. Um, very quickly, and we can get into some more yeah. biographical stuff uh, if you want. But very quickly, Rene came up um, with this, it's called mimetic theory, which is a big academic term mm-hmm. um, that kind of gets a stumbling block for some people. But it uh, basically what it means is that humans uh, imitate one another. We are radically social beings. Mm-hmm. Um, you, might, you might put it like this, that uh, I don't exist without you. There is no self without an other. Mm-hmm. There's a great African uh, saying that um, Desmond Tutu keeps bringing up, mm. and it's called Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. And what Ubuntu means is that I am because we are. And on one level, this is so beautiful because. I am not Adam Erickson in this moment without Micah Redding. Mm-hmm. I, I am not here doing this podcast without you inviting me and engaging me in on this. Mm-hmm. Um, on another level, I am not Adam Erickson, husband of Carrie Erickson, without my wife. I'm not a father without my children. In this sense, we are dependent upon one another for our identity, for our very sense of being. And uh, when I think about it that way, 
the theory is just so beautiful, but it's also very um, radical to the modern world because so much of the modern world for two reasons. First, because so much of the modern world says, be your own person, uh, think for yourself. Um, and really that, that message is dangerous to who we are um, as human beings because nobody really, nobody thinks for themselves. Mm. Um, you are not your own person. You are a combination of everything that has gone on before you mm -hmm. and everything that is present in front of you. James Allison, uh, one of the great Girardians and theologians, um, says that we are formed by the social other, those who are um, in our environment. And this can be uh, humans, um, family members, uh, co-workers, but also culture as a whole. Um, and you take uh, advertising. Advertisers know this really, really well. They're all about trying to influence who we are, influence our desires in order to get us to buy something. And the way they do that is by putting up uh, an attractive person uh, holding their product and saying, if you buy this product, then you will be like this attractive person. And that's what we all want. We all want this kind of recognition and um, mm -hmm. approval uh, through the world. And um, so that's, that's kind of the social nature that Gerard is doing that seems obvious on one level, but on another level really bucks up against a lot of modern thought. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of the first part of it. Yeah. Um, and you see the, like, I see the beauty of it, but there's also a, like, there's a paradoxical flip side, a danger to it as well. Um, and, and this I think is crucial for understanding, uh, what it means to be human, um, where we've come from and where, uh, our future lies, um, for a better future, which is what, uh, what we're talking about on yeah. the podcast. Um, what he also says is that when we are formed by others, um, our desires can converge on the same object. And this is how friends can become great enemies. Because we sh share the desires that others have, it can bring us closer together in friendship. But if our desires converge on the same object or the same thing, it can lead us into great conflict and rivalry. Um, and this is especially happens with people that we are close to. It's why in the Bible you see brothers become enemies so quickly. The enemy brother, the enemy twin happens so fast. Um, for example, I, I mean, the example that um, Gerard uses quite a bit is if two people um, of the same gender fall in love with the same um, with, with another person, with the same other person. So, uh, in high school, uh, a close friend and I have just happened to fall in love with the same girl, <laughs> right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is a pretty common example yeah. and, um, we, you know, you come into conflict and, uh, rivalry over, uh, this person. And if you find, if you have good ways to manage that conflict, um, then a friendship can survive, uh, a friendship can often all also explode over these kinds of rivalries mm -hmm. or what Renee says that's happened throughout human history 
from the very beginning of human culture is that the way that humans tend to manage these conflicts through shared desire is by finding a scapegoat, is by uh, projecting uh, or deflecting all of our conflict and rivalry onto someone else by blaming them for all of the hostility that is coming up in our community. Yeah. And, and that is a way of managing our conflicts. And the tragic thing about it, Micah, is that it works mm -hmm. temporarily. Yeah. So out of this scapegoating mechanism, uh, you find this temporary sense of peace where there was great hostility. This uniting against a common enemy brings a sense of peace uh, to our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, it, it is such a um, profound and profoundly dark uh, sort of observation. It's the, <laughs> it's, yeah. the, it's the realization that this thing that, that is essential about who we are has th this ability to drive us into um, this, this really morbid kind of dynamic. And um, you kind of, you kind of uh, um, made a sideways comment about um, the sense of individualism that we have and the um, the problem with with um, this idea of individualism is not that it you know per se makes us more individuals it's mm. that it um, it hides the fact that we are not being individuals right it yes. It allows us to pretend that we are entirely coming up with these ideas ourselves when mm -hmm. actually we're imitating other people all around us. That's that's where our our desires are ultimately coming from to a large extent. And so the the thing of of individualism is that it's an illusion that hides from us the very essence of what we're doing. And I think that's a big theme in. Uh, Girard's work is that we have these powerful dynamics that lead us into this kind of scapegoating other people, you know, blaming other people. Um, and uh, because we're able to kind of cover over them with this illusion that something else is going on, then it keeps us from confronting the reality that's at the heart of a lot of our society, a lot of our civilization, and a lot of our social interactions. Uh, it's such a such a great point. Um, Renee says that we are not so much individuals; we are inter-individuals, and this it, he emphasizes this over and over again. Um, when it comes to our desires, uh, you know, it's it's true that it's it's my body here sitting talking with you and your body um there yeah. <laughs> across the internet yeah. <laughs> um so there is this self that is yeah. here uh but it is much more of a self that is dynamically in relationship with those around us and and that is that is his kind of radical um statement and i think what often causes us so many problems when we have a strictly individual notion of ourselves is that 
we don't have a sense of gratitude towards the other Mm -hmm. because we end up wanting to think that, no, this is just me. I've, um, I've worked hard to get here. I've done this all on my own and I am not dependent on others who have helped me get here. You know, that, that thought just doesn't enter into our minds. And, and when we have a sense of gratitude, discipline (laughs) is what I'm talking about. But when we have a sense of gratitude towards the other, it, it helps us to avoid rivalry that can bring us into such great harm and conflict with one another. Because when we open, openly acknowledge our dependence on others and our gratitude for it, it can create beautiful relationships um, of mutual trust um, and, um, and love. Um, I think that's, I think that is the key to understanding. I mean, Renee does an important job of uh, explicating the dangers of all of this. And he constantly is pointing us to um, the violence. He's very prophetic in this way. Um, You know, the, the prophets of the Bible are always pointing to the violence within the community and saying, if you keep doing this, it doesn't take a. It doesn't take a. Uh, it doesn't take much intelligence or even revelation uh, for you to understand that we are going to come into um, an apocalyptic situation where we're all just going to. This is going to unravel uh, out of control, and we're all going to kill each other. Yeah. That is that is Renee's. Uh, message in his latest book in from 2007 battling to the end it's a prophetic warning um and that we had better find better ways to find unity uh than uniting against a common enemy because that is not working anymore yeah yeah so yeah there's there's so much here and um um i I, I want to try to unpack it in in uh, the you know I, I think probably um, I'm sufficiently uh, geeky about this stuff that we could talk for you know three hours or, or yeah. whatever but <laughs> but um, but so I think I think it's interesting how um, how Renee kind of came on to these these insights because doesn't doesn't he start um, by basically studying French literature. Yes, yes. Uh, it's a great, great point. Um, he actually uh, grew up in France, uh, and his dad, I'm pretty sure, was an atheist, and his mom was a Catholic, and I, he followed his dad uh, when it came to non-faith, to mm-hmm. atheism. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of rejected the, the Catholicism of his, uh, of his mother, and as he grew up... Um, He uh, followed in his dad's footsteps and became um, kind of a librarian. Uh, And then he went off to do PhD work in uh, the United States. And he did his uh, PhD in history. And then he got um, uh, a position at a college. But the college didn't have um, any French literary professors. 
And so they hmm. told Rene that he had to do the French literary stuff, which wasn't his, you know, his background, <laughs> um, only that he was French. So he was uh, he was teaching these novels and um, these these French novels. And he, he would say he was only like a chapter ahead of his students. Um, and he was like reading many of these for uh, the first time academically. Um, and during that time, every all of literature was about uh, the differences between novels and what was unique about a novel is what made it really great, really important. And Rene, because partly because he wasn't, um, uh, he wasn't trained uh, in, in literature uh, decided, well, maybe I'll see what is the same about these great novels. And what he found um, was that, they show this way of human relationships that our desires are in relation uh, to other people's. Uh, the formula that he uses is we desire according to the desires of others. Mm -hmm. And when he would uh, read Proust and Cervantes and um, eat Shakespeare, he would see that uh, conflicts arose between people who were close to one another and who desired the same things. The other, the other thing about this that is kind of counterintuitive is that we usually think that conflicts emerge from our differences. Yeah. And what Renee says is that conflicts actually emerge from our similarities, yeah. from having similar desires for certain things. And out of that similar desire, we end up making claims of absolute difference between us and them, uh, between us and those uh, we think are our enemies. But really, we're, we're desiring the same things. I, I, this is a tragic example of it, um, and I don't want to like intellectualize what's going on in the Middle East. Yeah. But um, when we fight over things like land, yeah. we're desiring the same thing. Um, when we fight over things like oil, we're desire. We're, it's because we have this shared desire, mm -hmm. um, and out of that comes this great hostility uh, between us and them, where we think we are radically different from these evil monsters over here. Um, but they're saying the exact same thing about us that we are the that we are the evil monsters. Yeah. Um, but really, it, it comes from this shared desire for the same thing. And we throw accusations that mirror uh, one another. Um, and we end up looking exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> Rene calls this the enemy twins, uh, yeah. the, the, double, the doubling that happens. So um, John Stewart did this great thing uh, where um, he would put um, – George Bush and uh, Osama bin Laden quotes that they had, <laughs> right? And they ended up saying the exact same thing. Like you couldn't tell which one was which. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's part of the tragedy of being human. Yeah. I think, yeah, you can see that same thing happening in, um, you can see it happening across like d Democrat and Republican politics where <laughs> we're often saying things that are incredibly close to each other. Um, I've seen it in my, uh, in my religious tradition, which is um, uh, the church of Christ. And in the church of Christ, there are um, it's a congregational 
uh, fellowship. So every every individual congregation can make their own decisions about the way they go about certain things. And so the greatest um, arguments will arise uh, between you know two different congregations who do almost exactly the same thing, but one of them. Um, you know, has a water fountain in the building and one of them doesn't. Um, and so this is the, this is the thing that they pick out to, to be really up in arms about. Um, and so the intensity of that conflict far outweighs the intensity of any conflict between that church and the local atheists or the, even the, you know, the local Catholics or whatever, the closer it is, like the more, um, the, the stakes seem so high. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. Yeah. And you, you even see that in, you know, when churches are trying to, um, figure out what carpet (laughs) they're going to, they're going to get next and there's, well, is it going to be green or is it going to be red? (laughs) You know, and you, you end up getting these factions. No, we need the green. No, we need the red. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's when it, it, it's, such a great example because it's just it's true about being humans the the small differences in the color of a carpet or um or whatever Mm -hmm. uh where the where the drinking fountain is or if you have a drinking fountain it can lead to uh big big problems and you know that uh when it gets to that point there there are issues yeah. bubbling underneath the surface right. uh, that have been bubbling up for quite a while. And the, the, the warning that Renee gives is how to manage those issues in a healthy, uh, peaceful way, a healthy, more loving way, as opposed to scapegoating one side or the other. Um, I, I'll give you this example from from the Bible. And I, uh, get it from, um, Renee's article that's been going around Facebook, uh, since he died two days ago. Uh, it's called, it's called, is the Bible a myth? Yeah. Um, uh, something like that. If you Google it, you can find it. And, um, what he ends up saying is that there are two ways to form communion. Uh, and you see it in the Gospel of Luke, particularly, where um, Jesus is about to be crucified. And um, Luke tells the story of how Herod and Pilate had been at um, odds with each other. They had been enemies with each other. But then they came together yeah. over and against Jesus. And on that day, they became friends. Yep. This is the the communion, the kind of anti-Christian communion mm-hmm. of uniting over and against a common enemy. Mm-hmm. And what 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 Jesus brings, I mean, that's what we've been doing forever. I mean, we can scapegoat Herod and Pilate and say, oh, you're so evil. Uh, but this is what humans have been doing forever, and it's what we continue to do. But the what Jesus does is bring this radically different way of forming communion, of forming community. Um, And instead of uniting 
against a common enemy. What we do at uh, the Eucharist at communion is admit the ways in which we constantly fall into this trap. Mm. And then we are given the, the, the good news, the, the uh, body and blood of Jesus. We take it in and we are reformed in the image of Jesus. And this is, this is very, um, the one who, the one who gives himself up to human violence to show us that God has nothing to do with violence, Mm -hmm. that God would rather take human violence upon God's self and offer forgiveness in return. And, and this is the point that Gerard and keeps bringing up is the point where Jesus says on the cross, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. And my, my good friend, Michael Harden says that this is the first allusion to the human unconscious or the human non-conscious um, 2000 years before Freud, <laughs> uh, you know, this is this, when we are caught up in the scapegoating mechanism and all of a sudden two people like Herod and Pilate can become friends and all of their conflicts can wash away yeah. as they unite against a common enemy. This is, this is not something that we typically do consciously. It's something that, that overcomes us. It's something that feels so good and it's so intoxicating to find this sense of communion uh, with another. And, and yet we know that it's based on a lie. Jesus, Jesus, this is why it's so important that Jesus says they hated me without cause because not only did they hate Jesus without cause, we hate everyone Mm -hmm. without cause. (laughs) This is what the scapegoating mechanism does. But in that unity, in that hatred, we find unity and it's seductive and it's intoxicating. But what Jesus does in, in communion, in the Eucharist is gives us another way to form community in the spirit of self-giving love. Um, And that just is so, it's just, it's just the alternative um, to the way that we have done it throughout human history. Um, And tragically Christians keep finding ourselves uh, going back to the old ways of doing things. Um, Yeah. That's uh, kind of once again to the topic of, um, of, this illusion where Jesus is saying, um, you know, they know not what they do. And he's, Mm. you know, he's, um, you know, Jesus before this has told his disciples, um, you know, as he's kind of leading up to his death, he's, he's saying to them, uh, basically a time is coming when what is whispered in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. And what happens with the gospels is just this sort of thing. The the secret kind of plots of how Herod and Pilate and all these people are kind of working uh, behind the scenes, the way that they're thinking through this, the way that this um, that people are uniting around this, you know, desire to see someone killed, the way that th- this uh, triggers the mob violence, all of this is what has previously been hidden. And um, Jesus acknowledges it as hidden, 
and yeah. then essentially rips off the Band-Aid. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and then the proclamation of Christianity becomes um, this thing that carries, that carries the, this hidden message, this thing that's going on beneath the surface out into the world. Yeah. I love it. And I'm also, as you were talking, I was also reminded of uh, Caiaphas's phrase that is so, that on one level is so true. Mm-hmm. Caiaphas says, isn't it better for one person to die than for the nation to mm-hmm. perish? That is, um, that is the, the formula for scapegoating. And, you know, on one level, I, I think, well, absolutely true. And, you know, the crowd unites against Jesus. Um, and if I am there, I am uniting against Jesus too. This is, this is what mimetic theory is so important and tells us about is that it's easy to see how other people get caught up in this mechanism. Yeah. But it is so much more difficult to see how I am also caught up in this mechanism. There's that old hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And I think the answer is yes. And I was shouting crucify him. Hmm. You know, that's, that's where we are. And it's Caiaphas's logic is the sacrificial logic that I think blinds, blinds me and blinds all of us to accepting, to truly accepting Jesus as our Lord and savior. Yeah. Um, it's it's the it's the mechanism of isn't it better for one person to die than for the whole nation to perish? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but to your point that you were making is Jesus rips off the bandaid. Mm-hmm. We can we can no longer um, see the guilt the the absolute guilt of our victims. Right. Because. Because guilt and innocence aren't what it's about. What it is about is us channeling our hostilities onto someone else. And that's a difficult thing for us to get because we always think that our victims are truly guilty. Mm -hmm. They really thought that Jesus was guilty. Um, And, and that made it, that made it okay to kill this person. Um, and so, but what Jesus does in ripping off the bandaid, I love that metaphor, is uh, takes away this sacrificial mechanism of uniting against somebody else in hatred. He takes that away. If you claim that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, there are two things that will happen. <laughs> A bit paradoxical. First, what will happen is that you will find yourself getting caught up in this sacrificial mechanism. It's what the disciples do. Over and over again, Peter imitates the crowd's hostility against Jesus. Peter denies Jesus over and over and over again. And Peter does this as representative of the disciples, all of them who flee Jesus during his time of need. That's who we are. We are the ones who flee Jesus in his time of need. And Jesus is the one who represents God, who is God, who comes back to us and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is the one who comes back in the resurrection and says, I am not holding this against you. Mm-hmm. Peace, 
peace I give to you. The first words out of Jesus's mouth to those who betrayed him was peace. You have nothing to fear from God. And then there's this invitation to live into that peace. This, this um, repentance means changing your mind. Yep. And what, what repentance is getting at when it comes to, to Jesus and um, the Hebrew Bible is changing our mind about God so that we no longer see that there is, Renee says that we no longer see that there is violence within God, but that God is, God is pure love. First um, John says it like this, uh, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. None at all. God is, you might say it like this, God is love and in him there is no violence at all. We are the violent ones. And God comes to us with this uh, invitation um, to acknowledge that violence within us and to manage it in a better way, in a way that is, as Jesus would say, turn the other cheek. Um, Forgive, offer forgiveness. Uh, This is the new creation that the New Testament talks so much about. Um, And I'm, I'm in the middle of the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel talks about this time when God will take, do this heart transplant for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> and we all have this kind of heart of stone, which is talking, which, which is Pharaoh language. Pharaoh had this heart of stone. Yeah. Um, so we're all kind of Pharaohs back in Egypt and God is doing this heart transplant where uh, our heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh. And this is what Jesus is getting. That Jesus is formed by is Hebrew scriptures yep. to see that this is, this is where this is the new creation where we will have hearts of flesh, hearts of love that don't form unity in opposition to someone else, but responds with love, even love for our enemies. Yeah. Cause that's what God does. That's what God is like. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I, I love it. There's, um, one of the things that I uh, I think find so compelling about um, Girard's uh, mimetic theory is um, how how analytical it is in a way, and um, so you know we can uh, we can look at it, we can look at the scriptures and see all of this kind of um, explication of 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 these dynamics. Um, but the, the layout of the, of the theory itself, um, is fairly straightforward, I think. And, and how I, it it involves a couple of steps as I see it. So tell me if, if I'm kind of thinking through this correctly, but the, the first step is, is that we as humans, we, we imitate each other. So we, we look at someone and we say, okay, I, in some sense, want to be like that person, and so I'm going to imitate them. The second step is that then in imitating them, we um, imitate their desires. So we see the uh, you know the the other person in the love triangle, or we we as babies uh, in the nursery, we see the the toy that the other baby is reaching for, and so suddenly because we now are imitating them we are imitating their desire 
and suddenly we care more about that particular toy than any other toy, or we care more about that particular boyfriend or girlfriend than any other particular boyfriend or girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then we are suddenly in this rivalry with the person that we are imitating. The person that we admire most, in a sense, becomes the person that we are most opposed to, most uh, antagonistic with. And, um, and so then the third step is that societies big form around this sort of thing, that societies have this constant interplay of imitating each other and, um, and being drawn into the, this kind of antagonistic desire. And I think Girard says that, um, early societies were constantly essentially blowing up because yes. of this, that they were led into this almost like a, a gravitational collapse that at some point the amount of antagonism becomes so intense that the society will just destroy itself and go down in flame. And, um, and then the, and so then there's the brilliant fourth step, which is that they come up with the idea of blaming a victim picking mm-hmm. out a sacrificial victim and if everybody can blame this person then then we can all experience what you were talking about uniting around this shared uh hatred pour all our hatred on this one person and still instead of the entire nation perishing we will kill one person we will destroy one person like the in the words of Caiaphas yeah and and then the um the the final step which is taken in the christian tradition in the christian story is to reveal that this is what has been going on all along this is the dark the 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 satanic impulse that has been fueling um a lot of the civilization throughout history Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful way to explain it, Micah. I love I love what you just did there. Yes, that's that is it. That is the theory in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and um, you see it. I you know as you were talking, I was thinking about um, oh, there's so much going on. Uh, the the Cain and Abel story. Yeah, and uh, you can compare it. What Gerard does is compares it with uh, the founding of Rome. Uh, the Romulus and Remus story. And he does this great, great comparison. Um, So in in the Cain and Abel story, uh, you have Cain who is jealous because he thinks that God uh, likes, honors uh, his brother's sacrifice more than, more than his own sacrifice. And out of this jealousy that he has, for Abel, he um, he goes out and he kills him, and and Abel's blood cries out to God, mm-hmm. and here and God hears it, and here is is this radical message that God hears the cry of the victim. God is on the side of the victim, and and the beautiful thing that happens in the Cain and Abel story is um, that God doesn't seek revenge against Mm 
mm. Cain. Yeah. He stops, he tries to stop the cycle of violence. He puts the mark on Cain um, to, st- to try to stop that cycle. That is what God is about, stopping the cycle of violence. But as you go on and you see, humans um, tend to be about continuing that cycle um, until you get to the point of Lamech, uh, where you know somebody uh, somebody hits me or insults me or strikes me, and you go off and you kill people. Yeah. Uh, and then pretty soon you've got this uh, apocalyptic flood of yeah. um, of what what I would call human violence, um, the flood of human violence. And what's this? What's the pattern in the Noah story? The earth was full of evil and violence. Yep. Evil and violence are connected together, and nobody. Here's the thing. Nobody thinks that their violence is evil. Right. We all think that our violence is justified. But throughout the Bible, the prophets um, and the Noah story tell us that our violence is the problem. (laughs) Whether, Whether we think our violence is justified or not doesn't matter because everybody thinks their violence is justified. And that is the problem. And so Jesus will come up with this, uh, with this, phrase of um judgment i guess you one could call it that those who live by the sword will die by the sword yeah you know that's that's the judgment on human beings um if we continue down this path we will we will find that we will kill ourselves from this violence that's the apocalyptic yep. message yep. um i i guess the the romulus and remus story very quickly uh is the founding of uh rome and romulus kills remus and you you, the difference in the story, uh, Cain ends up creating the first culture. Romulus ends up creating Rome. The difference is that um, in the biblical account, God hears, God hears the cry of the victim. In in the myth, um, God doesn't. This this is this is completely justified. Yeah. This murder is justified. And this is what Rene is constantly pointing to, the difference between myth and the Bible, myth and gospel, is that you see this transformation that in the Bible, God hears the cry of the victim. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, in, in, in that, in that passage, it's, it's a, it's making a incredibly controversial identification, right? It's saying, mm-hmm. whereas, Romulus was um, looked at as a hero, I think. Yeah. He founds Rome. Uh, He's the hero. He has to kill his brother first um, and then do it. But Cain is is um, one of the uh, scriptures, you know, most intense bad guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he founds the first city. uh, But the, the biblical writers are saying that's not, you know, that's bad news. Like that's yeah. not, he's no hero, you know. It's this is what this is this is what we miss and I'm so glad that you brought that up because this is what we miss so much about in the Bible. Um it is its critique of violence. So not only is Romulus viewed as a hero in the Roman myth, he's viewed as a god. He's divinized. Like this so so myth ends up telling the story uh, that basically says violence is part of what it means to be human. And that's just the way it is. Yep. 
Um, there's no critique of it. And in fact, those who are like Romulus, uh, control the world with violence, uh, end up being godlike. Yeah. But in the Bible, the one who that you get this, not this divinization of violence, but a critique of violence. You get this, this view that, um, God is completely other. And there are times, of course, in the Bible where God is seen as violent, as, um, as, you know, being in control of, um, Babylon and Assyria and causing all of this violence to happen. That's in there. Of course it's in there. We all know that's in there, but you get this also what's in there is this critique. And that's, what's so important about the Bible is that it is a library of books about people debating what is God truly like? And you get the mythic structure in there, but you also get the critique of that mythic structure. So Hosea will say uh, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Yeah. Out of this tradition uh, comes Jesus, who so clearly has nothing to do with killing, nothing to do with violence. This is the one who shows us who God is at the most fundamental level, that God has nothing to do with violence but everything to do with love and forgiveness and compassion and even a love for our enemies. How do you become sons and daughters of God? You love your enemies. Yeah. Cause, cause, because that is what um, our father, our mother, our creator does. Yeah. That's how you, that's how you become sons and daughters of God is that you love through nonviolence. Yeah, and this is um, this is the, one of the interesting things about um, Girard that I I think uh, kind of baffles a lot of people is that that ultimately his his theory kind of suggests um, that there is something categorically different about the Christian and Jewish traditions, mm. and but it's not a um, it's not a um, it's not just like, oh, well, we're, you know, we're better uh, than everyone else or we have even um, some different sort of of dynamic going on. It's that. Um, well, I, I like to think about the, the Jewish people, you know, the Jewish people were the chosen people of God and that. You could understand that in a couple of different ways. You know, one way would be to understand it as, um, you know, we're better than everyone else in the world. Um, and, you know, we we deserve to be the ones ruling instead of Rome or, you know, something something along those lines. Um, but the I think the the deepest kind of aspect of the biblical tradition is to say, you know, what we're chosen for is to unmask the what's happening in the world. Um, what we're chosen for is to be, uh, as Jesus says, the you know the light of the world, um, not to you know essentially stand above the rest of the world, but to invite the rest of the world into a new way of understanding things, a new way of looking at things, and. Um, and so I think that um, it it gives us an interesting 
way of looking at um, Christian scriptures and understanding that there is something, uh, you know, there is something distinct between the story of Cain and Abel versus the story of Romulus and Remus. There is something that's different between uh, Genesis one and um, the uh, the Babylonian creation myth or the mm-hmm. the um, epic of Gilgamesh or whatever. You know that even though we see these similarities in some of these stories, that um, the the interesting thing is not um, that there are you know there are two brothers who fight, but that um, in the biblical story we're shown that um, you know where where God is listening, as you say, um, yeah. and where you know what this this heroism that that some stories mythicize what that really is, what it really looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love it. I'm um, reminded as you were talking about uh, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all claim Abraham yeah. as our Abraham and Sarah as our founding parents. Yeah. Um, and in Genesis 12, Abraham gets his mission. And that mission is that he and his descendants will be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. Yep. And that is really it. And, and th- wh- why that is so radical is because the families, the tribes, the, the whatever, um, can get into a, a dynamic where it's about um, self-survival Mm-hmm. Or it's about um, gaining a sense of identity by being a by being a curse right. to other families, by being against other families. So, who do I know that I am as a progressive Christian? Well, I know that I am not those conservative evangelical Christians. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like this is this is how we tend to form our identity. It's in opposition to others. I was on, um, I was on the internet this morning listening to, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, talk about, um, his arguments against, uh, intelligent design. Hmm. And I thought, Oh, that's, that's really interesting. And I love Neil deGrasse Tyson and he's fascinating to me. Um, and he was, uh, he was kind of making fun of this pastor who was, talking about intelligent design and i was like yeah whatever um but i went down and i read the comments and everybody who was commenting was like oh uh that pastor is so stupid and he's just a herd mentality of other christians (laughs) who are you know propagating this intelligent design thing and isn't that so ancient and archaic well everybody was saying basically the same thing and it's like we can always see when other <laughs> tribes, when other families, when other people have the herd mentality. Right. But we can't see it when we ourselves have this kind of crowd or herd mentality. Right. And so we end up forming these uh, crowds, tribes against one another. That's just one modern way that we do it. Yeah. And I don't mean to pick on atheists. I love them. Um, yeah. but, but this is what the call of Abraham is getting at. Do not form your identity in opposition by cursing other tribes. Mm -hmm. Your job, if you take on this 
mission, <laughs> yeah. the Judeo-Christian Islamic mission, is to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. That's what you are about. That is our role. And as you say, Jesus takes Isaiah takes this up. Jesus takes this up in the language of to be a light to the nations. And how do you be a blessing to the nations? Jesus will end up telling us it's by being the servant. Yeah. It's not by he says, you know, the the Gentiles they lorded over people. When they when when they get power, uh, it's power over and against. But I'm giving you a different kind of power. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that lives into the call of Abraham that is a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. And that is our mission. That's the new creation uh, that's going forward into the world. Um, Gerard claims that Jesus takes away the sacrificial mechanism takes away the band-aid as you called it yeah we can know that's the crutches that humans used to have in order to create unity jesus takes it away and the danger behind that is that the scapegoating mechanism worked yeah but it no longer works it worked to bring peace temporary peace but we are at the point where we can no longer have temporary peace because as Renee says, we have all of these weapons that can cause mass destruction and we can kill ourselves. Right. You know, I like, we are at this apocalyptic yeah. moment in human history and we had better find a different way of creating unity, which is, which Renee will end up saying, and this is kind of the uh, scandal um, that you're that you're kind of pointing to earlier in your question, Renee will say that the only way to do that is by following Jesus, is by turning the other cheek. Yeah. Uh, personally, I I think that you can find this in other religions. Um, I think that that Jesus. That, here's my Christian interpretation of it. Yeah. Jesus shows up wherever the heck Jesus wants to show up. <laughs> You know, and if that is in if that is in uh, secular culture, thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. If that is in Islam or Hinduism or whatever else, thanks be to God. What we need is a repentance from violence. Yeah, change our mind about violence and live into this self-giving offering of relational love with one another. Yeah, I think uh, you know. I think that we, um, you know, the 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 scriptures kind of talk um, about the um, uh, entering a new era. You know, that Jesus is is basically um, creating a new era in human history, um, and and I think you know what what Gerard points to and what you were kind of just alluding to is that the scapegoat mechanism no longer works because mm-hmm. we have the, like we can, we can all unite and we can all kind of go down and, you know, and, and um, go against someone and destroy someone. But there's always kind of this um, nagging question about that, right? We, d- yeah. it, it doesn't work the same way it used to, because now we've seen that sometimes the victim of the crowd is actually the son of God, right? Sometimes um, 
sometimes the person that everyone thinks is guilty and deserves to die is actually where God's showing up. Absolutely. And so Amen. we can't, you know, we can't just kind of totally push that out of our minds. Sometimes we do a good job at, you know, pushing it mostly off the stage, but, but it always comes kind of creeping back. And so that when we do unite around these kind of acts of violence where we all kind of get up together as a society and try to do something, it, it, it doesn't stick, right? Yeah, like yeah. it, it quickly devolves. We quickly go back to our problems. And that's, that's kind of where you're saying, like, we have to find a new way of doing this because that way doesn't actually hold the same. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well as it used to. And, um, so, so yeah, you know, yeah, we are in a time period where um, if we are not able to find better ways of, of relating and resolving our differences as a society and increasing our empathy, then our ability to be destructive is going to quickly um, just escalate to the point where, um, you know, there, there may be nothing, nothing left, right? Like our empathy is going to have to, um, rise to, to that challenge. Yes. Uh, it's a great point. And it reminds me of, uh, the story about, um, Saul and conversion to yeah. Paul. And this is where, you know, Saul is on the road to Damascus, breathing threats of murder against, the early Christians and he sees this vision of uh, Jesus where uh, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here is where, uh, you know, as you were just alluding to, here is where Saul sees that in persecuting other human beings, he is persecuting Christ. He is persecuting God. That is what he is doing. And, you know, he's got very good religious reasons for doing it, you know. And unfortunately, those (laughs) uh, my wife just sent me an article saying um, uh, religious kids are less empathetic than secular kids. Hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, religion can often I don't want to scapegoat religion here, but religion can often build up this can get away from Abraham's call. To be a to be a blessing to all of the families, and this is what this is what Saul was doing. Um, and Jesus, this vision knocks him off his horse, and um, he's the scales are on his eyes. And um, later on, he he comes to uh, somebody of the early Christian community, and um, that person calls him brother. Mm-hmm. Saul, my my brother, and that's when the scales come falling off, and mm. you you see uh, you are included into this community, no matter what you have done in the past. These threats of murder against us, yeah, we're not holding it against you. You are included in this community, and this is what Gerard is also pointed to. That's so crucial is that we tend to form our identity on who is excluded who is included and who is excluded. And in the Christian story, you get this, you get this message where even those who have tried to kill us in the past, 
you are included into this community. You are our brother. Paul ends up writing in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek slave or free male and female. You're all one in Christ. This is the different sense of finding community in the spirit of love and inclusion and compassion that, um, that, that the Bible is pointing us towards. And, um, I think it's something that, that we need to, that, that we need to live into. (laughs) I mean, um, and I see the, the hope that I have is that I see this emerging in the secular world Mm -hmm. where it's, at a faster pace than in many Christian circles and in many churches. Um, you know, uh, many Christians, for example, um, will want to say, Oh, the secular world is so awful and backwards because it's promoting the homosexual agenda. Well, what's the homosexual agenda? Um, we want to be treated like other people. Like, (laughs) I mean, is that really like, really? (laughs) I mean, in Christ, there is, there are the, there are no longer these distinctions. We can't do this anymore. We can't use religious uh, principles like Saul was using to be over and against other people. We can't do it anymore. Jesus takes that sacrificial mechanism away from us. We can't do it. And I see that emerging in the secular world at a fast pace. And this is where I'm like, thank God. Thank God that this Holy Spirit is moving yeah. uh, in our world at, at this fast pace. And I hope that the church uh, can catch up. And I think I yeah. think that it is in a lot of ways it is. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that I think um, I think we we do a lot of times in um, in the church. Um, we see change happening outside of of um you know in the secular world and we assume that because it's not happening here um that it it must not be um must not be you know uh from god or something like that but the um i think the scriptures suggest that that you know god is going to work in the world regardless of whether we participate you know (laughs) we we have the choice of of joining god in his mission but um, but he's not going to completely just you know shut down because um, we didn't get it past the right ecumenical councils or or whatever. Yeah. He's, he's going to get his um, you know he's going to be working on his his uh, mission in um, whoever's open to that. And I think you see that um, across the uh, entire breadth of the scriptures. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah, Ezekiel. You're reminding me of Ezekiel, where um, the reason that God leaves the temple mm. is because the leaders of Israel no longer look after the needs of the poor yeah. and the weak yeah. and the marginalized, and in fact, they oppress them. There is violence. They use violence, um, and God's the prophet Ezekiel says. God is leaving mm-hmm. the temple. God is leaving Jerusalem because of this. And what does God do? God goes and finds other people yeah. to work through. Yeah. That that is and if if that's what we're gonna do as a church, then God is God is going to find other ways 
as you say, of, uh, of being in the world and showing people how to be a light to the nations, a blessing to all of the families of the earth. Yeah. You know, you're, um, what, what you're saying about Paul and realizing that in persecuting these people, he was persecuting Jesus. It Mm -hmm. kind of goes back to, um, what Jesus himself says, uh, he talks about, you know, the sheep and the goats and, and, um, and they come before the, uh, the throne of God and, um, and he separates them and he says, um, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in need, you, you clothed me, you took care of me. And they say, well, when did we do this? And he says, you know, whenever you did it, to the least of, of these. And he, and he says the same thing to the, the people who didn't, right. He says, you know, you didn't take care of me. And, and, um, and they said, when did we see you and not take care of you? And he says, you know, when you saw the least of my brothers and did not care for them, then you were not caring for me. And I think for me, this is a really significant thing because we sometimes, um, have, successfully cloistered our idea of what religion and spirituality is to where we think it's this um, entirely kind of mental and emotional thing that um, maybe takes place in certain certain times, certain places, um, and has very little to do with uh, what we do in the world. And Jesus is saying, no, your spirituality is the thing you do in the world. Yeah. The way you care for these people, the things that you do to make the world better, to make um, to make life for for um, all, all of the all of human life uh, better. Those are the things that you're doing to me. That's your service to God. Mm, yeah, it's uh, you're you're reminding me of um, something else that I hadn't thought of before. That is so important about this kind of interdividual. Uh, interdividuality that Renee points to is that oftentimes our spirituality can take on just this kind of personal quality to it. I need to work on my spirituality. Right. Well, well, if Renee is right, and I take it that he is, spirituality is not so personal. It's relational. Yeah. And as what you're pointing to in that um, in that parable is that our spirituality is dependent upon others being in relationship with others and how we care for uh, the needs of others is what spirituality is all about. Now there is a balance here because as Leviticus says, we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so, so the constant trap is um, for many people is spending all of our time helping others and forgetting how to love ourselves in the meantime. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, Jesus goes off um, into the wilderness to be alone during certain times. Yeah. He needs to get away from the crowd so that he can be. And again, this, he is not alone because he is with God. He is with yeah. his father. And that is where I, that is where, uh, he gets, he receives his identity from Genesis 
starts off by saying that humans are created in the image of God. In the image of God, God created them. There's, it's this repetition. It's get this point, you are created in the image of God. And why is that so important? It's because after that, humans are created in the image of other humans. This is where we gain our identity from. We don't, we no longer gain our identity, our image from God, but from one another, which as Renee and as we've been talking about leads us into rivalry and conflict. Right. Well, what, what Jesus models is constantly receiving his image from the image of God. Yep. The image of the, of the loving nonviolent God that has no rivalry with us but wants the best for us and is with us and is leading us into this uh, eschatological future of, of love where every tear will be wiped away. And, you know, um, in revelation, I'm reminded of throughout the Bible. Oftentimes it's the, the princes of the world, the Kings of the world who are causing so many problems Hmm. uh, for Israel. And, in this vision of the of of when um, heaven and earth finally come together, uh, the, all of the princes of the world come in to um, the new city and bring in their glory. Yeah, you know, and this is I'm like really the the princes like have glory have something good to offer <laughs> like throughout the Bible like these are the guys who are pro- causing the problems. Right, but you can't revelation won't allow us to scapegoat the princes of the rulers of the world. Yeah. They come into the new city and bring in their glory. And yeah. this is, I, I think that this is so important because it gets us away from scapegoating. It gets us away from it. It, it emphasizes that everybody um, has this glory within them. And how do we bring that out? Um, it's not through entering into rivalry with them. It's by showing them the love that Christ showed us that while we were still enemies with God, God loved us. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's really profound. The, the, the vision of, of revelation, the open gates, everything Mm -hmm. is being brought in um, and is, is being taken up into this um, into the goodness of, of God and his creation. Um, so how, you, yeah, you've you've kind of addressed the eschatological vision. How does this, in a, um, you know, in maybe maybe a more near term or or however we want to look at that, like how does this help us to um, build a better future f- um, for humanity? What would that look like if we were able to do that? If we were able to um, really kind of realize some of these things and and move past um, some of the real, uh, you know, some of the real issues, the kind of apocalyptic concerns that we've been talking about. What what would be possible if we were really able to kind of uh, in, ingest <laughs> this, these sorts of realizations? Boy, that is a great question. I, um, you know, I, while I was talking, I, I wanted to hesitate about the, about putting it as the eschatological future, Mm -hmm. because the eschatological future is happening now in the present. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not something that we 
are that that we are meant to wait for after we die. Right. You know, this is this is the problem that a lot of heaven talk has in Christian circles. Heaven is not something that is off into the future, not primarily something that's off into the future. Heaven is right now. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is among you. It is present. Uh, the Lord's prayer, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Jesus is the embodiment of heaven and earth coming together now, yeah. not sometime in the distant future. So how we live now matters because that is how we live into heaven now mm -hmm. not sometime in the future and so what does heaven look like it looks like what we've been talking about it looks like you know you you go to the sermon on the mount jesus talks about um turning the other cheek loving your enemies this is and it's on one level i want to say just relax because this can feel like a big burden. But Jesus says, my, my yoke is light. This is not supposed to be big and burdensome for you. Why is that the case? James Allison says it beautifully. Um, because you are loved. Mm -hmm. That is the image of God that we receive. And once you receive the love of God, you don't have to strive to receive the love and admiration of your fellow human beings because you already have the love of God. And once, once, once you get to that point, then you can start talking about the ethical. Mm -hmm. Once you get there, then we can start talking about, well, what does it mean for, since we've received this unconditional radical love of God, how do we, how do we, how do we relate to others in the world um i like for for me um i guess to answer your question uh i can only i have a hard enough time managing myself <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like i have a hard enough time managing myself i don't need to start managing my wife or um i hope you don't think that i'm a bad parent for this my kids um <laughs> you know, or my neighbors, my job is to manage my own, my, my emotions, my thoughts, my feelings, um, and try to manage them in a way where I can reflect the love that I open myself up to, to receive from God so that I might reflect that into the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it can Christians can sound moralistic and I don't want, I don't want, I don't want it to sound moralistic. I want, I want it to be in much more of a relaxed state of uh, giving and receiving. Um, and this is, this is what God is about. This is the Trinity. Um, you know, the, the ancient, the ancient church fathers came up with this term called perichoresis. Yeah. Oh man. I love this term. And it, it, Para is the uh, Greek word for around, and choresis is the is the word that we get from choreography. And basically, what it means is that God is dancing around. Hmm. I mean, this like like 
we we tend to think of God as this like judgmental king and um, awarding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, God is uh, kind of the Santa Claus figure who is judging us for this and that. And what is God like? According to the early church fathers, God is this joyful dance of love, of giving and receiving and out of the abundance of the Trinity, giving and receiving that love uh, to all of the world, because that's, that's the joyful dance that is God. And um, so I like religion can take on this kind of burden uh, within it, but but that's a false religion. Yeah. What true religion is, is taking on the joy of God and sharing that dance, yeah. participating in the dance that's been going on for eternity mm-hmm. in the world right now. And if I can take responsibility or if I can manage myself in a way that participates in the dance of joy that God is doing, I've done okay, yeah. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> but what I end up doing, uh, is saying, Oh, uh, it's their fault. If they just, if they just talked or behaved <laughs> in a certain way, you know, politicians or, um, or people I'm in conflict with in my family or wherever else, if they were the ones who would just change, uh, then my life would be better or the world would be a better place. And that's a trap. That is that that is that for me is not participating in the dance of joy that is God. Yeah, yeah, I love that. The um, I think that's something we need to probably work to reclaim. Is this is the ancient um, Christian concept of of what the Trinity is, and and the sense that you know this is all an invitation to join in that yeah. dance. Right. This is yeah. an invitation to join in that kind of joyous life of God. Um, and it's, it's so beautiful. And it's something that um, it's one of those things that at least in American Christianity is it seems to be uh, pretty severely lacking. Um, but uh, but yeah, absolutely. Like the ultimate the ultimate will of God is for is for this kind of joy. Yeah, and I think that there are so many things that distract us from that joy, including all of this fear from uh, mainline progressive Christians that our churches are dying and yeah. oh, the the sky is falling and all. Don't get distracted by that. Yeah, just 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 participate in the dance of joy, mm-hmm. in the dance of of love that gives and receives freely without any expectations. Uh, for anything in return, but participate in that dance of joy, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's I that. I think that I think is one of the most important, as you say, one of the most important gifts that the ancient tradition of Christianity has given us. That, as you say, we have um, ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think is also this beautiful image of God that can lead us into a better future. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, th- thanks, Adam, for um, joining the, this conversation and for kind of walking through a lot of uh, of this stuff. There's there's so much here, and um, I uh, like I said, I, I'm super 
geeky about this. I love, uh, <laughs> love this discussion. I love, um, this way of, of kind of unpacking a lot of things because I think it has, you know, given me a lot more depth to the way I look at the scriptures and the way that I, um, am able to kind of, um, look, you know, try, try to look at myself and my own kinds of, of interactions and, uh, the dynamic of that. So it's been, it's been really, um, profound for me. Um, but, uh, so how can people, uh, find more about your work and, um, yeah, just more about this kind of subject matter, where would be a good resource to delve into this more? Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, I write for the Raven Foundation, and um, we're also on uh, Pathos at Teaching Nonviolent Atonement. Hmm. Um, and uh, other resources, uh, if people are interested in reading uh, Gerard's work, um, the Gerard Reader is a good place to go to. There's also this really, I, I personally, I think his best book, his most accessible book, is called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Hmm. Um, it's a just a fascinating read. Other people who have written really great stuff, I would uh, point to as one of the best introductions to the theory is James Warren's book, Compassion or Apocalypse. Hmm. Um, Michael Harden has done amazing work on his website, his Facebook page. Um, his book, The Jesus Driven Life, is, is crucial reading. And uh, I've mentioned him a couple of times. James Allison um, has wonderful website and excellent books. Uh, particularly, Jesus, the forgiving victim, is transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would look into those those authors. So, okay. yeah. Well, I'll put I'll put links to this uh, stuff in in the show notes so people can kind of look all, up all these things. There's a lot of of um, ground to cover. Uh, but I think, I think it's worth it. And I think, uh, a lot of people have found it pretty profoundly, um, significant. Um, so thanks. Uh, like I said, thanks for, thanks for joining me and, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll continue the conversation in the future and kind of go even further into some of these, uh, subjects. Uh, so I'd, I'd enjoy that a lot, but um, I would love it, Micah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. We'll talk later. Bye. Sounds good.